Atlanta's number one radio stations. Swanky 93.3 and The Heat 94.6. Radio stations has you covered. From our studios to our newsroom at KLP Entertainment. Listen on all major audio platforms like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audacity, Apple Podcast, Stitcher Podcast, Google Podcast, YouTube and more. Her words weren't written under peaceful shade, but under fear for her life. I don't think of all the misery, but of the beauty that still remains. The words of Anne Frank continue to fill us with hope. Hope. Pass it on from PassItOn.com. Live from our newsrooms brings back our hit news network, SNN, with many news anchors like Arthur Brooks, Addison Hayden, and Beatrix Gemma. Brings you stories about the news worldwide. Tune in on Atlanta's number one stations, Swanky 93.3 and The Heat 94.6 radio stations. To get the latest news today, listen on all major audio platforms like Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audacity, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Podcast, Google Podcast, YouTube, and more. You know that Big Bargain detergent jug is 85% water, right? 85% water? I thought I was getting a better deal because it's so big. If you want a better clean, Tide Pods are only 12% water. The rest is pure, concentrated cleaning ingredients. Oh, pass me the intercom thing. Attention shoppers. If you want a real deal, try Tide Pods. Don't pay for water. Pay for clean. If it's got to be clean, it's got to be Tide Pods. Water content based on the leading bargain liquid detergent. Close-up with antibacterial zinc. Amazing. Blasts away 99.9% of bacteria for all-day amazing fresh breath. Based on lab tests. Up to 12 hours with regular use. That's amazing. Close-up. When I first tried online dating, I was very confused. I didn't even really understand how to make a good profile, which is actually a lot of people don't understand that, clearly. Janet Ha, 65, first tried online dating in February of this year. It was her son's 20-something ex who helped her make a Bumble profile, but all of her initial matches were focused on hooking up. And because I wasn't sure what I was even doing on online dating, I did check looking for something casual. And I screened people like it was challenging. It's a lot of work. And then you finally get to these dates and they're just not what you're expecting at all. I did text a friend of mine to say, why do they think we're going to have sex on the second date? And he said, no, Janet, they think you're going to have sex on the first date. She quickly learned to navigate the app, although she wasn't sure what she wanted. Her nearly 30-year marriage had ended in divorce and her kids were grown. I just did not want to have to take care of anybody anymore, said Miss Ha, who is a teacher from Minnesota and plans to retire this spring. I'm Katherine Pearson, a well reporter with the New York Times, and I cover families and relationships. The article you're listening to is about the joys and some of the very real challenges of dating in your 60s, 70s, and beyond. This article was inspired by the upcoming career of The Golden Bachelor, which follows Gary Turner, who's a 72-year-old widower, as he looks for a partner, and as he said, ideally someone who is really high energy, who likes pickleball and golf. 
reality TV obviously isn't the most accurate look at this really important topic. So we wanted to talk to some folks who are actually in the trenches about what their experiences are like. Dating is really complicated no matter what age you are. The folks that I talk to are facing all of the challenges that people in their 20s and 30s are facing, plus some additional challenges or hurdles. A lot of people brought up the example of sexual dysfunction. That can be a real issue, you know, physical issues, people who are grieving the loss of a partner, people who are coming out of a decades-long marriage that eroded in divorce. People are encountering online dating who have absolutely no experience with this, certainly didn't grow up digital natives who have spent their lives on social media, and so that's just new and confusing and weird. And the counter to that is I do think that there seemed to be this really common thread of people feeling like they know themselves, like they're confident in a way that they never were when they were younger. That can bring a certain sort of levity and joy to the experience of looking for love at this stage in your life as well. I have gained a whole new perspective on life from dating after 60 and a whole new perspective on sort of what retirement could look like, what the future holds, and how dependent I will or won't be on my kid, and a lot about just what it is to be, I don't know, still alive now in this crazy time. This experience of self-discovery was a common thread in all of my reporting. Kathy Denton, who is 64 and who I get to a little bit later in the article, had a lot of really great stuff to say about her own experience. What's different about getting now than, you know, in your 50s and 60s than when you were younger is that your dreams are different. You know, you're younger, you want kids, you gotta have a husband, and you want that family thing, and all that's gone. It's like a new blank slate. Today, I woke up thinking... We always wish we could go back and do it over again. Well, here's your chance. Even if you're not gonna stay with the person you're out on a date with, you can still have fun and go somewhere new, buy some new clothes and get out and see things, see people. There's clear data showing that there is a crisis of social isolation and loneliness among older adults and that that is deeply harmful to people's health and well-being, their physical health, their mental health. I do think that there does tend to be a little bit of a tendency in the media to sort of focus on those stories and not necessarily on, you know, the fact that older Americans are also vibrant and they're connecting and they're dating and they're having those experiences as well. Being with other people is scary. And there's some real weirdos out there. There's really nice people too, but... They're not going to come and knock on your door. You have to get out and look for people. But you can't look for love. You just have to look for yourself. And in the process, you might find somebody pretty cool. And now, I'll get back to reading you my story. Cindy O, a licensed clinical psychologist with a private practice in Los Angeles, said she is struck by how different dating can be for her older clients because they have a much stronger sense of self. They have accepted who they are, and they are presenting themselves as is, she said. Though Miss Ha's introduction to online dating was inauspicious, four months ago, she swiped right on Mike Ecker, 64, a divorced electrician from Wisconsin. Had they met in their 20s, I don't think I would have been attracted to him, and I don't think he would have been attracted to me, she said, describing herself as a city girl and Mr. Ecker as a rural guy. 
but their rapport was easy and instantaneous. Whenever Miss Ha matched with someone, she would ask them to send a song that they were vibing to. Mr. Ecker sent Invisible by Trey Anastasio. It felt like a sign, as Miss Ha had been thinking a lot about the invisibility of older women. On their third date, Miss Ha drove three hours from her home to spend the weekend together. They have spent nearly every weekend together since, playing Yahtzee and cribbage, cooking, and having what Miss Ha described as mind-blowing sex. The secret, she said, was good communication. We are really open to talking about everything in a way I have never experienced before, Miss Ha told me. I used to be afraid to show who I really was in a relationship before, because they might leave. And now, I don't have that at all anymore. One in three baby boomers is single, said Susan Brown, a distinguished professor of sociology at Bowling Green State University in Ohio, who studies demographic shifts in marriage and divorce. An estimated 14% of singles between the ages of 57 and 85 are in a dating relationship. David, 61, described feeling as though he was shot out of a cannon when he began dating, after his marriage of 25 years ended in divorce. He told me that he found the loneliness of a cold marriage even lonelier than being alone, and is now experimenting with polyamory and non-monogamy. He'd had inklings during his largely sexless marriage, but never felt like he could explore those sides of himself, and described the confidence he feels now as a remarkable feature of midlife dating. David asked to use only his first name out of respect for his ex-wife's privacy. David, who lives in California, told me, one thing I quickly discovered is, wow, you really don't have to play any games at this point in life. I don't have to tell any story that's not true about me, and neither do they. Kathy Dutton, 64, agreed she feels bolder now, in part because she no longer experiences the pressure she once did to settle down. She has been able to find fun with some of the men she has met through various dating sites, even if none has been a long-term match. One delightful man cooked her the best soups and breakfasts. Another swept her off to his condo in Florida and showed me how to have fun again. Miss Denton would like to fall in love again, but she has also fallen in love with herself and realizes she is the only company she needs. Miss Denton lives in Michigan. She goes to the beach, spends time with friends, and plans to enroll in a stained glass making class. If I had to spend the rest of my life alone, I'd be fine with it now, she said. I love my life. Dating after 60 isn't all roses. Several daters interviewed for the story mentioned how frustrating it is to meet people whose toxic behaviors have calcified over decades. We need a lot of patience with each other to undo some of this crap we've been through, said Miss Denton, adding that she has dated men who turned out to be compulsive liars or who she suspected had alcohol issues. She has interacted with men who clearly did not bother to read her profile, she said, and others who sent naked photos. Some daters also brought up sexual dysfunction, the shrinking dating pool for older women, and the very real threat of being scammed. But for Ms. Ha and Mr. Ecker, opening themselves up to each other has brought them both surprising happiness at this stage in their lives. Mr. Ecker has been dating off and on for 10 years before he met Ms. Ha and was coming out of a particularly difficult stretch when they connected. His mother and his beloved dog had both died, he had ended a three-year relationship, and he had lost a chunk of his life savings to stock market volatility, just as he was gearing up to retire. Now, the couple are planning the next stage of their life together, 
thinking about what they want retirement to look like. They feel lucky to have found one another at this point in their lives. Since the pandemic officially ended, we hear a lot about New York is back. City's recovering, it's doing very well, and there are lots of numbers to back it up. But I wanted to know what the recovery actually feels like for people living here. Whether the middle class and folks who are in lower earning jobs are feeling the recovery the same way that more affluent New Yorkers are. That's what the story I'm about to read to you in a minute is about. I wanted to know what's really happening in New York City's recovery. Every year, the U.S. Census puts out economic data on households that gives us a sense of what's happening here in New York City on the ground. In the latest data set, two numbers really jumped out at me. The first number that really struck me is the fact that Manhattan now has the biggest income gap in the country among large counties. This gap is the biggest it's ever been, and experts tell me it's bigger than in many developing countries. Manhattan's always been an expensive place to live, but this gap now represents the richest Manhattanites making 53 times more than the poorest Manhattanites. The second data point that stood out to me was the fact that the median household income, which is a good measure of what's happening to the middle class, has actually fallen since the pandemic by almost 7%, which is far greater than the decline that we're seeing nationwide. These two things combine with the sometimes rosier picture we see a thousand feet up in the air that New York City, yes, is recovering. I think the naysayers have been proven wrong about New York City. Obviously, the city is returning, but it's not recovering for everyone. And I think these numbers highlight that in a way that is really striking. Here's my story. As New York City inches closer to recovering all the jobs it lost during the pandemic, Manhattan, the city's economic engine, marked a far less encouraging milestone. It now has the biggest income gap of any large county in the country. Even in a city notorious for tableau of luxury living beside crushing poverty, the widening gap is striking. According to 2022 census data released earlier this month, the wealthiest fifth of Manhattanites earned an average household income of $545,549. That means they make more than 53 times as much as the bottom 20% earned an average of $10,259. Social Explorer, a demographic data firm, analyzed the data for the Times. It's amazingly unequal, said Dan Trebefridge, the president of Social Explorer. It's a larger gap than in many developing countries, and the widest gap in the United States since 2006, when the data was first reported. The Bronx and Brooklyn were also among the top 10 counties in the country in terms of income inequality. It is the latest data to underscore the city's lopsided rebound from the pandemic. Across the city, wages are up, but mostly for the affluent. Jobs are returning, but many are in low-paying positions. Unemployment is down, but remains sharply higher for Black and Hispanic New Yorkers. The mixed signals highlight a widening chasm. The city is recovering, but many of its residents are not. We're still much worse off than we were in 2019, James Parrott told me. He's the Director of Economic and Fiscal Policy at the Center for New York City Affairs at the New School. Nearly 20% of public housing residents in New York City have reported making less than $10,000. And middle-income New Yorkers are also struggling. Roger Gunning, 50 years old, is a sanitation worker and a resident of public housing in the South Bronx, where he lives with his wife, a social worker. I make $22 an hour, and I still can't survive on my own in New York, he told me. Several of his co-workers live in temporary shelters, he said. Middle-income New Yorkers are hurting since the pandemic, Dr. Parrott said, because of stagnant wage growth in service jobs and the slow recovery of major industries, like retail, which shrank more severely in New York than almost anywhere else in the country. 
From 2019 to 2022, the median household income, one adjusted for inflation, fell below $75,000, a nearly 7% drop. That is four times the national rate of decline and the steepest slide among the largest American cities. The next biggest income drop was posted by San Antonio, Texas, where median household income dropped just over 5% to below $59,000. Phoenix recorded the largest improvement. It had an almost 8% jump in median household income to nearly $76,000. Chino Zeno, a 21-year-old construction worker who makes $23 an hour installing solar panels, finds that his pay hasn't kept up with inflation. To cover rising food and gas prices and to help with expenses at his family's apartment in East New York, Brooklyn, he moonlights as a freelance photographer. He said he is grateful for a recent pay bump. He made just $16 an hour as a part-time warehouse worker in 2021 before training to enter the building trades, but it's still not enough without a second job. 100 is the new $20 bill, said. It's hard for people right now. The already affluent have benefited the most from rising wages. Low-paid workers like restaurant servers and childcare professionals, who made an average of $40,000 last year, saw their salary increase by just $186 every year from 2019 to 2022 when adjusted for inflation. But highly paid earners, who made an average of more than $200,000 in fields like tech and finance, received an average pay bump of more than $5,000 each of those years. That means they made 27 times more in extra income than low-wage earners. The city has made significant strides. In August, the labor force participation rate was at a record high, and the unemployment rate was 5.3%, down from a pandemic peak of over 21% in May 2020. But New York has yet to fully recoup the jobs lost since the pandemic, which much of the nation already has, in part because the virus struck the city sooner and businesses, including those tied to hospitality and tourism, remained closed longer, Dr. Parrott told me. Other popular entry-level jobs, like couriers and home health aides, have seen their wages lose ground to inflation. Charles Lutbeck, a spokesman for the mayor's office, credited the job growth to initiatives like the expansion of youth employment and apprenticeship programs. But, he said in a statement, we have more work to do, and we won't stop until every New Yorker has access to a quality, family-sustaining job. Wage growth has been stunted for many New Yorkers, in part because the minimum wage, set at $15 an hour, has not increased since 2019, Dr. Parrott told me. Among the 10 largest American cities, five have raised their minimum wage in that period by an average of 25%, and four of them have higher minimum wages than New York City. Gregory Morris is the chief executive of the New York City Employment and Training Coalition, an association of workforce development groups. He told me that many labor groups are pushing for a $21 an hour minimum wage, which itself could fall short of the cost of living, because the city does not scale pay to inflation. Next year, New York State will raise the minimum to $16 an hour in the greater New York City area, and $15 statewide. In 2027, the minimum wage will finally be pegged to inflation, but that may be too little too late, some critics have said. This is a working people city, as the mayor points out, but I think the question now is, which working people? Morris asked. For Khadija Bathia, 42 years old, a single mother raising three kids on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, finding work is not the problem, it's the hours. After losing her job as a security guard at a bank in 2020, she started working as a server for catering events around the city. Up to 70 hours a week, seven days a week. At over $25 an hour, the jobs were worthwhile, but all-consuming, she said. I caught a bad anxiety attack one day. 
You really worry about not spending enough time with your children, so I said, I need to find something else to do, she told me. Ms. Bethia enrolled earlier this year in a 14-week career training program run by Henry Street Settlement and Stacks and Jewels, two nonprofit organizations. The free program helps lower-income job seekers find work in heating and ventilation system management for large buildings. She graduated in May and is now paid $20 an hour, less than she made waiting tables, but she has the opportunity for career growth and the possibility of working remotely some days. For now, she still works about four catering gigs a week. A significant dilemma for job seekers is that the time to learn new skills can be costly, especially in an expensive city like New York, said Anise Alves-Willis. She's the program director for YouthBuild, a six-month employment program through St. Nick's Alliance, a nonprofit community service group. The time commitment is a luxury many low- and middle-income workers can't afford, even when stipends are included. Angelita Mendez, 35, a beautician who moved to Washington Heights in Manhattan from the Dominican Republic in 2021, began taking free English lessons last year with NIMIC, a nonprofit service provider. But she only made it about halfway through the course before bills started to pile up. The $1,600 a month rent she splits with her mother, the $1,100 a month she pays to lease a booth in a salon, and the rising cost of groceries for her two children. She makes about $600 a week, or around $31,000 a year. I don't have the time to do it, honestly, she said in Spanish. But she hopes one day to return to the class, become proficient in English, and use her skills to study cosmetology. Where would her newfound skills take her? Probably New Jersey, she said, where it's cheaper.